Hello, hello. Welcome, everyone. It's Sunday, the 23rd of May. We're still out for Bunga Bunga, which is George Hoare, Philip Gunlef, and myself, Alex Hochuli. And today we are discussing an article. Uh, it's a long essay, actually. And we are discussing it because it asks similar questions to those that we ask, but come up with slightly different answers. I'm going to explain a little bit more. But uh, before that, hello, Phil. Hello, George. We in a good mood yeah, today. Why did you say? Why did you say we're still Alpha Bunga Bunga? Why wouldn't we be Alpha Bunga Bunga? Well, things change. We might have yeah, we, we might have transcended and abolished the condition of Alpha Bunga Bunga and gone to That's a, true. a new have, and improved podcast. We might have communized might, Alpha Bunga Bunga, or yeah, it might be, we might be Meta Bunga now. I guess that would be <laughs> could be Alpha Bunga Bunga Bunga. You know, could just add one for every <laughs> hundred every episodes what? we do. <laughs> okay. No, I I didn't even notice that. So good good listening, Phil. Good close attention to the to the text. It's called active listening. Okay. Mm. Yeah, which is you should try it sometime. Yeah, that's good. Um, so uh, that's we, a way we, to insult our listeners, Alex. Oh no, I meant you. I, I meant you. <laughs> all right. Okay. I meant George. Okay. Good. Good. Um, we've all, we're all very cheery on this uh, Sunday. Well, it's Sunday morning, Sunday lunchtime for for George and Phil. Um, we're not cheery at all. I don't know why. It's um, bad, bad vibes today. I don't know what's going on. Partly the weather, partly the um, the slow kind of erosion of lockdown, but still locked in this weird kind of limbo between um, the resumption of normal life and the strangeness of the lockdown times. And also, it's like the worst like May in like recorded history or something in England. So, yeah, well. Crappy. I'm I'm all right. I've, I'm having a delicious can of 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 soda, uh, which is soda. which is amping Who the hell says soda? Well, well was, because was, you have to say that, and unless they're going to give us money, you shouldn't mention yeah, the brand name. Exactly. It's um. It's, In fact, if you do mention the brand name, it'll raise suspicions that we're taking money from capitalists. There's actually a thing where Instagram influencers make it look like they're promoting a brand so that they get associated with with that with somebody of the stature who would be promoting that brand so we could say like oh yeah coca-cola that's the best uh soda and then people think whoa these guys get um they get they get kind of money from coca-cola they must be pretty must be pretty good they must know what they're talking about so we could we could try that verso books are the best books <laughs> <laughs> they aren't uh, zero books are yeah, well, there's many good publishers out there. Um, anyway, <laughs> let's <laughs> let's get going. Um, we are talking about EndNotes um, and a specific article that's just come out. Now, EndNotes um, is a collective based in the UK, but uh, I think they probably have contributors elsewhere um, who are, I guess, associated with uh, left communism or the ultra left. Um, they have their kind of their inheritance, I suppose, theoretical inheritance is both sort of German value critique and the French ultra-left. Um, why are we discussing this? Um, I guess one thing about just to describe kind of EndNote's approach in general, um, they're uh, kind of wedded to realism. There's no cheap optimism that you or sloganeering they often find in kind of radical left publications. Um, and I think they're interesting because they dare to engage um, but also criticize Marx, um, and maybe even I could say to historicize Marx, to update uh, a sort of Marxist approach to um, the contemporary time after the historic defeat of the working class, the decomposition of uh, the industrial working class, um, and the decline of class identity as the sort of most, um, as, as a sort of unifying 
identity for for proletarians around the world. Um, so what's interesting about this is that they have argued elsewhere, you know, that the industrial worker, which used to stand in and represent the whole of the class, even those who um, weren't industrial workers and in large parts of the working class, um, even at the peak of, uh, of industrial employment, weren't industrial workers, um, in part because many were housewives, but also worked in services and so on. Um, but that industrial worker can no longer stand for the whole class um, as, as an identity for the whole class. And so what they set out to do instead is to take uh, the real movement now, what we can see on the ground um, and uh, rather and engage with it rather than just critically standing it against Marxist orthodoxy and saying, well, this doesn't fit what we, um, you know, what socialists used to say in the 19th and 20th centuries and therefore um, re reality is wrong, right? Which um, you can find that sort of Marxist dogmatism amongst various far left sects, um, which is in part very useful and maybe the end notes approach um, at least has something going for it in, in its kind of realism and willingness to engage with what's uh, really there. Um, just some other notes on, on I guess, what EndNotes is before I describe the article, because this isn't a reading club, by the way. Um, so, I mean, obviously, if you want to read that article, go ahead, but we're using it as a sort of jumping off point to discuss themes which uh, are common between that EndNotes piece and our work, the stuff we discussed on this podcast, and especially what is in our book, The End of the End of History, coming out on... Uh, uh, the 25th of June, available for pre-order now. Uh, get your copy. Et cetera, Sorry, et Alex, what's the name of that book and, and when's it coming out again? Of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, 25th Are you, are you also going to cut in an advert for it? <laughs> well, I, I think, no, I've done it. I think now it's done. So, um, But the, our patrons know they're aware. They're aware of the book. Um, they're aware they of must, the greatness. They must be. Uh, We're going to wear them down until we know that every single one has, <laughs> has bought a copy. Um, Sorry. Sorry. So anyway, the EndNote's approach looks at certain ways that radical politics has changed, that the way that conflicts now take place in around consumption or distribution rather than production, um, the way that movements attack the police rather than the boss, um, and that you could even add maybe... Uh, look attack political rather than economic elites. So, you know, the role of populism or anti-politics today. Um, one final thing I guess I should say about the EndNotes approach, and this is a bit more theoretical, uh, but they see capital rather than the proletariat as the subject of history. So workers' struggles, um, especially kind of trade unionism, um, social democratic parties, and so on, have worked within capitalism and worked to reconfigure capital, um, but not overcome it. Um, and so what you have, especially today, is not class consciousness, but consciousness of capital, that we're all that the kind of one universal element is not the proletariat as, you know, marching in unison together, um, seizing history, but rather that we're all subject to capital, that we're all perhaps even abject, um, which is one of the terms that they use. Um, guys, anything to add? I don't know if you guys are familiar with, have read much EndNotes or not. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've never made a, you know, I've never made a systematic study of it um, or comprehensive study of it, but I mean, I've, I certainly, um, have read them persistently um, since they've been publishing. And I'm, you know, some of their ideas are intriguing. We've had a previous reading club on Jasper Burns, who's one of the thinkers associated with the EndNotes Collective. And, you know, that was an interesting debate that we had um, some and, sessions and, back. And indeed, Aaron Beninav, who was a guest on the podcast, um, talked about unemployment. I didn't realize policy. Aaron was associated with the EndNotes yeah, Collective. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, you know, so there are some things which I think are, um, it's very uneven. It's a very mixed bag in terms of the kind of um, 
which I guess is, and I think that it probably, I think that probably stems from the nature of the project as a collective. So you have kind of very, um, you know, strands which are intertwined, but which aren't really allowed to be disentangled and expressed, you know, with different kind of partisans for different viewpoints, precisely because it um, is designed as a collective where there is no um, single author behind a particular idea. And it seems to me that not only kind of inhibits um, authentic debate, but it also makes it more difficult to actually pursue the logic of particular arguments by forcing them into a clash or at least being able to attribute authorship to particular kinds of ideas. And that seems to me to be important. So, you know, that, that I think um, the collective design and the unwillingness for individuals to take responsibility, I think that speaks to a deeper anti-political character of EndNotes, um, as well as the difficulty and the unevenness of some of their thinking, where some of their insights are, um, you know, very in, least intriguing, if not on point. And other times it's just kind of the standard online ultra-left kind of nonsense that you might pick up anywhere else. Um, the other thing I'd say is, I think, I mean, generally... Uh, I'm left underwhelmed frequently by the by the things that they kind of front load as their large contributions, because it seems to me a lot of it is puncturing myths of Marxism, which are kind of which rely on a certain kind of caricatured understanding of Marxism, as if it was about this united kind of monolithic um, uh, industrial workers kind of in, you know, aprons and cloth caps marching, who manufactured widgets and smokestack factories all marching in one direction and that Marxism was insensitive to other political questions. And they say, well, you know, that is now past and we have to be realistic. And that kind of um, a realism, which is premised on puncturing myths that were caricatures, you know, that doesn't, it doesn't take you, it doesn't take you very far. It might be kind of, it might be enlightening for, um, for the kind of grad student left of whom admittedly there are plenty um, but I don't think it takes you very far. So I wouldn't call them serious. I think that's the difference. I wouldn't call them serious. I think rigorous in parts and insightful, but I'm not sure I'd say serious. Phil, you're such a bourgeois individualist. Uh, you know, you need to uh, defend collective authorship, like in radical <laughs> organs like The Economist, uh, very collectivist. Or, yeah. uh, or, um, or a book. Uh, but it's called the the economist not the economists so they're kind of it's just become one single economist um (laughs) now i as you did ask for for kind of brief critical points to 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 start with i mean the first thing that i would say is that they've missed a trick not using footnotes because it'd be good to have a publication called endnotes that uses footnotes i made that joke earlier but i i like it i think it's I, i i made myself laugh um well, not not laugh, but I was like, yeah, you're you're clever. Um, no, I th- I think that let, let's get onto the specific um, article because I think it's got it's got a lot to get our teeth into, um, and some stuff that I think I, my points would are directed at specific um, claims they make. Yeah, let's. So just to describe the article, if you haven't read it, um, what it does is it looks at how since 2008 there's been increasing protests. Uh, around the world, revolts around the world, and a delegitimation of the system. And I think this is obvious. This is something that we've talked about. We call it the end of the end of history. Um, they call it something else. Uh, and they, in this specific article, they focus, I guess, sort of the, the protagonists on the streets are the Gilets Jaunes, uh, the movement in Chile since 2019, uh, and the uprising 
after or whatever you want to call it, protests and riots uh, after the murder of George Floyd. Um, what they look at and, and trying to bring this all together and synthesize it across the world and look at it in its objectivity uh, is the, what they call non-movements. So these are kind of movements which can only be defined negatively uh, or unity in enmity. So they these things spring up in opposition to something, but not ever really for anything other than maybe uh, a demand to be able to live in peace with a bit of order or um you know, to defend living standards, but not really um, any unifying political concept. And as a con- what ends up being is that these fragmentary and often fragmented movements and uh, movements of the squares, of the streets, and so on, actually reflect back capitalism's own disorganization, its own anarchy and stagnation, um, which I think is a very smart point um, and a very smart dialectical point. Um, They also note that these movements are all afflicted by a crisis of representation. Um, Internally within themselves, as they're not able to kind of throw forward leaders and organizations, but also that they are a reflection of a wider uh, crisis of representation in society, in politics. Um, And one final claim that they make, and it's the one that is the most difficult, at least from my perspective, and the, the one which I most in, in instinctively disagree with, is that identity now mediates class everywhere. And so they try to take identity politics seriously, but in a different way to, I guess, liberal identity politics. But anyway, we're going to come to that because there's plenty to untangle there. Um, just one couple of final notes on why well, I, this is this is an episode that I produce, I put together, and so um, let me explain. I guess from my own point of view, why I thought it yeah, was it's interesting. Just in a to collective, it. take some responsibility. I am, I mean, I am taking responsibility exactly. Um, so, as I said right at the top, it treads very similar ground to what we've been discussing on this podcast, and we discuss in the book: the end of the end of history, uh, the explosion of protests and riots, the growth of anti-politics and of populism, and the way that that has led to new culture wars and the growth of identity politics. So just in terms of the the objects that this piece deals with, it's very similar to what we've been dealing with. Um, And it also starts from the perspective that the working class has been defeated and and has decomposed and that its politics, um, the kind of socialist politics of the working class are no longer longer hegemonic on the left, a point that I think we would all agree that that is an essential starting point, that if you don't recognize the historic defeat of the working class, you are... Um, kind of living in illusions, really. Um, But where we have been critical from a political perspective, Endnotes is uh, much more favorable towards anti-politics as a real movement. Um, They see the kind of rejection of political establishments, the rejection of politics as potentially revolutionary, whereas we have generally been much more critical of it. they, they make the point, and I'm going to quote from the piece, any discussion of emancipation has to begin here, namely in the inability of a movement to mobilize a people. So again, there's a realism there, but there's also an element to which they endorse something that maybe shouldn't be endorsed. We'll come to that. Um, so finally, just, just to sum up, I think it's a very serious attempt to answer the same questions that we pose ourselves. Um, we come up with rather different answers. So this is why I think it's worth tangling with. Um, guys, anything to add just quickly on on my description of the piece before we get to some of the questions? I thought it was a good description. I, I liked it. I do remember when you first shared this article and I was like, oh, uh, you know, how long will it take me to read? And you were like, it's a 10 minute read. So I think I just have to hold you to account 
um, you need to take responsibility for it will take more than 10 minutes um, to read. No, I think the, the way that you summarized it, there's of those three points. Um, so it's kind of the working class, not at the center of politics, the crisis of representation, and then um, identity mediating class. I think the only one that I would, or the, the, the most interesting thing about this article is that is that second point that they do recognize the crisis of representation. And that is a really important one, a really important point. I think I wouldn't go the same way as them in terms of how you respond to that. I think we can talk about ideas of responsibility, authority, particularly, and how you kind of make working class politics, you know, how you how you um, try and have a contribution to that. But I just wonder if this, the kind of their analysis isn't being driven by that point you made at the top about sort of seeing, you know, seeing capital as the, the subject of history, that would tend, to, I mean, if, if I'm kind of understanding this correctly, that would tend to make you think that any movement um, of the working class is is not is going to be disorganised. It's going to be a non-movement because it cannot it, it cannot express a collective agency. So, so there's always going to be a tendency towards di- disempowering the working class. I don't know if I'm kind of overstating that, but it does seem to me to be a kind of like that's not a that's not a kind of Marxist project um, as far as I can as far as I kind of maybe I'm trying to grasp what you what you said at the outset. Well, let's put a pin in that because we're going to return to that um, in the course of our discussion of the thing. Um, But it's a good point that we have to ponder. So, I mean, just to start off with, um, they endnotes describe these non movements as passive revolts, uh, subjective expressions of the objective disorder of our times. I mean, I quite like that point. Do we think that's right? I mean, just in in a kind of um, almost empirical sense, I mean, or, or just analytical sense, is that correct? Um, their, their description of these movements and protests, riots, and so on. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it is, it's um, that it, yeah, it contributes to the same mirrors and in many ways contributes to the same kind of um, seems to recapitulate essentially the same deadlocks that we're all confronting. Um, And even further, I mean, sometimes it's very clear just for instance, how, how much, um, major kind of leading state institutions, but also major kind of corporations have um, found it easy to accommodate and adapt to certain of these protests and use them as, you know, not only kind of new marketing ploys, but new ways to kind of legitimize themselves and something we've talked about before. So I think that, I mean, yeah, I think that kind of short account of the so-called passive revolt, um, which is a nice oxymoron in a way, I think it captures something real. Yeah, I mean, and jumping straight into the anti-politics theme, I guess, um, and I, I say that maybe that's, well, the crisis of rep- representation more broadly, and I mean, the way we describe anti-politics um, in the book, for example, uh, is in in part encompasses that rejection of representation as a, as a possibility, uh, the rejection even of political authority. So, the the it's the end notes in the piece they point out that the non-movements tend to both attack and withdraw from a state they perceive as withdrawing from them so here we can think of the protests that emerge after the murder of george floyd for example of attacking the state for uh racism police brutality but also in a sense withdrawing from it demanding that this police be abolished um 
and I think we can probably think of num- numerous other examples of protests as well, where there's not really d- clear demands being placed upon the state. They attack the state for what it's done or for what it's not done. Um, but there's no, uh, yeah, there's no real, they're not asking the state to do anything or to be reconfigured in any way, more just stop doing that and leave us alone. So is this sort of disengagement a problem? Or do you think it can actually, and this is, um, I'm kind of putting this out there, can it presage a greater taking of responsibility? You know, if you're not making demands of the state, does that mean that you as a movement might be willing to um, take responsibility in some way for the running of society yourself without the state? Well, there doesn't seem to be evidence of that. I'm not, no, I was going to say the opposite, that there does seem to be um, in some, like, you know, defund the police, and instead, we will community organize. We will kind of um, uh, police society through uh, in, in our autonomous zone ourselves. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> I think there is maybe that's, you know, that's an, an unrepresentative example. But there does seem to be a kind of attempt to take responsibility. I mean, I'm, I wouldn't Where? say it went very well. Um you mean but the, I don't... Um, you mean the uh, what was it, Chaz? Chaz. Yeah, or maybe it's the opposite. Black kids were killed by the folks who were running, um, running the kind of so-called autonomous zone. Yeah, I mean, but but maybe it's the opposite. I'm sort of thinking out loud here that it looks like it's taking responsibility, but in fact, it's avoiding the responsibility of of sort of maintaining law and order, and then you need to you kind of create a kind of warlord um situation of you know of a void there, there's a kind of the void well, which indeed. is being responded to is being deepened yeah i mean so i mean yeah that's the i don't see any evidence of any kind of serious um vision of political responsibility and as is you know as we have said and as others have said the vision of defund the police is essentially brazilianization um, which is to say kind of allowing, um, you know, the rich people in their gated communities get um, security guards um, and everyone else has to suffer the consequences. That's actually a good theme, um, Brazilianization. You know, somebody maybe should write an article about mm, that. Yeah, indeed. Um, um, but so, I think I think that's right, at least in these Anglophone cases. I think, I mean... Yeah, I think I, Anglophone, I, I, calling it Anglo... I mean, Amer- you know, like BLM is an American phenomenon. It's not like there yeah. is some kind of um, wonderful utopia of well-organized slums which are resisting state authority. No, no, no. But, but it, Alex, Alex, Alex was going to tell us about the, the world. Alex was going to tell us about the Lucifer tropics. So no, oh, I yes, wasn't. The I was gonna, no, no, no. No, the point is the point is that the examples discussed in this, you know, especially, I and mean, these are ones that we should return to because they're the ones that Endnotes uh, proposes. But you know, the Gilets Jaunes and the Chilean revolt, right? There, I mean, there in Chile, yeah, I think so it's like the to- Chilean revolt is, I think, genuinely interesting, and our listeners are well overdue an episode on it. I think because of the, you know, I think it's worth digging into deeper, given you have the collapse of the established parties, but also um, the kind of the new constitutional processes. There does seem to be um, an attempt, at least, you know, how serious or sustained it can be. I guess we'll have to investigate further, but there does seem to be an attempt to reconstruct the nation. Chile at large, right? Yeah, yeah. I think distinguishes it from almost all of these other kind of um, up, um, unruly kind of upheavals that we've seen over the last um, over the last few years, or where there is an attempt, you know, with Syriza or Podemos, you know, they've been abject failures, as as we've also extensively talked about. Yeah. No. Indeed. Um, I, I. I. Maybe. 
Yeah, I, I'm just thinking more kind of theoretically rather than necessarily taking the, the lead from empirical examples. But that, yeah, one could say that kind of with attacking withdrawal from the state could could lead to, as George was saying, you know, um, you know, community organizing, community uh, self-policing, for example. Um, but one, I think there's a limit to that as a strategy, perhaps, um, especially as it's going to most likely be quite localized and so on. I don't know. Maybe it could be more generalized. Um but, but as you also say, there hasn't been much evidence of that specifically. That doesn't mean that that couldn't uh, then develop. And I think then we'd have to really engage with that seriously. And because my default would be, no, you should be making demands of the state and seeking to take over the state. But maybe if politics is being done in a very different way now, um, where there is this uh, crisis of representation um, and withdrawal from the state, we have to then engage with that and not just sit there and say, well, this doesn't follow my... Uh, theoretical precepts that I have from the, you know, taken from the 19th and 20th centuries, and therefore it's wrong. No, indeed. I mean, you know, and that, you know, the point is well made and well taken. I mean, I guess, I guess I'd still be skeptical because it seems to me like even kind of um, community organizing, self-organizing communities, which is something I would be kind of spontaneously sympathetic to. I find it very difficult to imagine how it becomes anything but kind of um, security guards for gated communities on the one hand, and maybe, you know, um, creepy kind of um, small scale NGOs taking over in inner cities and kind of mediating the relations between those kind of inner city communities with, um, you know, essentially parastatal organizations take over yeah. in place of the state, giving jobs for PMC kind of grads who work in these NGOs, taking money from corporate donors and government to manage these um, otherwise kind of left behind communities. So I, I find it hard to see how, you know, community organizing goes if it isn't scaled up and interlinked in a larger vision of political transformation at the national level at the le at least yeah but then it's not then it's not community organizing well no but that incorporates, then it's a leninist project well no i mean at least that it incorporates community organizing but not to kind of have community organizing as the horizon yeah um to, just to move on um because this we're going to kind of keep uh, drilling uh, along the same theme can you drill along a theme i suppose not but anyway uh, we can try we can it. be the first people to, to <laughs> drill along a theme <laughs> i'm sure there's uh, some like experimental modernist classical music which what, involves drills yeah. or i was gonna drills. say just really bad lyrics like drilling along a theme anyway uh so just drill music so. There is that, yeah. Um, we so we we deal obviously with anti-politics extensively in the end of the end of history, um, and often use the same examples as what Endnotes here calls uh, non-movements, but they instead seem to want to tail anti-politics, whereas we have pointed out that anti-politics has this uh, depressing circularity to it, where in denouncing elites, denouncing the establishment, uh, you end up coming, you end up giving rise either to authoritarianism or to kind of new techno-populists who absorb some of those anti-establishment energies and resell it back to you, you know, in the next election. Um, so what we, I mean, the end notes approach, basically, is something that actually we criticize in the book as revolutionism. Um, so, uh, which is, to put it another way, it's a one form that anti-politics from below takes, um, which uh, seizes on this crisis of representation and tries to basically tail anti-politics and say that, you know, actually this, these anti-political revolts are good because all formal politics is just uh, bourgeois management of the masses and that we should, uh, you know, reject um, engagement with that. Um, 
what do you guys think of this? I mean, it's a very, it's a, it, it's a very different answer to what we have come up with while looking at the very same things. Yeah, I think the one of the points that they make about <clears throat> the negative unity of some of these non-movements. So there's like, you know, negative unity, non-movements. There's clearly a kind of negative construction there, which is, you know, is is, is interesting um, that they're basically defined by um, being against the police, against elites, against um, racism. That I think that's that is kind of a a, a well-made point. But then, I, I I think it does like there is a there is a step that you can take if you have an analysis which is which is grounded ultimately in power to say, well, these these things are are phenomena which are created by a by a you know a, a structure that requires the police to pay a certain function. And it's not the police that you should be against necessarily, but you if you have a a politics which is aspiring to you know to take control of the state and to transform the state in doing that and so on and so forth then you know you you do want to have a um a theoretical model which is able to explain why these things come about as phenomena but also to change the thing which will stop similar things coming about in the in the future um so i guess that's what what i would say about their analysis is that they they sort of they it seems like they have a a critical embrace of these kind of non-movements this global accumulation of non-movements as, as they put it um and that's they're not going to fundamentally change anything i mean if anything they deepen the status quo by by seeming to to pull things out of the roots but but not at all just just um, or further the disorganization with other, right. yeah, exactly. Furthering the disorganization in the, in the, uh, guise of, of increasing organization. Yeah. I think it's a tricky one because on the one hand, you'd want to be critical of, uh, the way in which any new popular energy immediately gets kind of redirected and reinscribed into the existing political order. So it's, you know, oh, how is this going to help the Democrats win the next election? I mean, that's the worst of it, right? That's that's the far end of it. And, and it's awful. But but also in other ways, it's like, okay, how do we for, form this into a party which then competes in elections? It's like, well, maybe, you know, the, this, these radical energies could be driven to something greater than just trying to re-enthuse an existing party or create a new political party, which competes in elections in the same way as uh, the old decrepit ones do, right? As you, as you have with Podemos, for example, I mean, the whole left populism thing. So in that sense, I'm more anti-political when we look at, uh, when we look at kind of the failures of left populism. Um, On the other hand, I probably wouldn't go as far as EndNotes do in being so comfortable with the crisis of representation and being okay with this, because I think because I think what it leads to, what it could only be is sort of an insurrectionary sort of politics where this disorganized mass on the streets just leads to a revolution. And maybe it starts doing, you know, kind of uh, attempts at communization as, as it's called, you know, of building new links of self-organizing society um, directly not mediated through the state. We've already ta- touched on that. Kind of skeptical of that, so I think it's it's a tricky one. I think I wouldn't just be outright anti anti politics uh, in the sense that I'm I'm uh, I'd be as I said I'd be skeptical of the way that popular energies are just immediately redirected towards 
formal politics uh, in in the old way of doing things um, at the same time as not really endorsing kind of just remaining in anti-politics because I think it's uh, self-defeating. I think that point, uh, to, just to, you know, not to bang on about it too much, the crisis of representation, like it's something which has affected all political parties, trade unions, like it's a really, it's a really like deep and serious problem. Um, but that, and I think it's the the primary problem that we, that we face today, how to, to engage in a, a you know, in organizing in uh, the working class into a, into a single uh, actor into a into a class force. How do you do that when the institutions um, to do that and are, are not are not anywhere? You have to, and I think the only thing that you have to do is be ex- extremely serious and say, "Why? Well, okay, well, we're going to try and do this <laughs> ourselves because nobody else is going to do it." Um, so, and that's a long term project, and I don't think it's you know I don't think it's a very easy one either. But that's the you know, that's the, I still don't think there's a there's a an alternative to to having an organised working class as an actor in in politics if you want to if you want to change things seriously. But you know, yeah. that's that's that might be a an old model that I'm still clinging to uh, potentially. But yeah, that's that's I think, where I would start. No, I think that's right. I think that's right. Um, but I think you you know the the point about this and it's a rec- point that Endnotes I think recognise and it's one that we make. Um, pretty explicit in the book is that the crisis is not just a crisis within politics, but it's a social crisis um, of cynicism, of disbelief in representation. You know, there's a kind of rejection of all forms of representation. No one seems to really represent you. And maybe that can even be tied to a certain culture of narcissism and so on. And, um, you know, I think that, that it's tricky. It's tricky, basically. And it seems that, you know, maybe some populist leader, interloper, charismatic leader comes in and um, is able to capture the enthusiasms of a certain section of the population. Um, But more broadly, there doesn't seem to be any willingness, at least as as far as we can see, to commit to organizations and that organizations might have representatives that represent you um, democratically and so on. Um, There doesn't seem to be much appetite for that. Um, But on the other hand, there's a lot of appetite for belonging and people wanting to have a sense of social purpose. So I think there's something which still hasn't been realized. And maybe it takes someone doing something experimental and trying something out to show that uh, we can get past this impasse. So uh, just to move us on, um, and to talk about class specifically, uh, and this is one element I think here where I was most skeptical, um, and I'm going to come to Phil because I'm, I'm sure he's uh, also kind of uh, disapproving of this point. Towards the end of the piece, they they hint that these non-movements are mainly lumpen proletariat and disenfranchised middle class. And there's not really much room there for the traditional proletariat, industrial or otherwise. I mean, they actually say the proletariat no longer has any romantic task. Its role is to overcome the tottering order by continuing to resist all attempts to rejuvenate the world of politics. So, you know, you have these mass protests, which are often composed of lumpen proletarians and of disenfranchised middle class and some proletarians, but maybe they're not the majority there. Uh, And that in these protests, you know, you have this denunciation of the whole order. um, And what the working class should do is to go along with that 
and to resist any attempt to rejuvenate the world of politics, to uh, maybe rebuild, you know, social democratic parties or trade unions and so on. Phil. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how much use of it, you know, trying to kind of precisely specify all the different sociological layers of uh, all of these protest movements. I'm not sure how useful it is and calling, you know, them lumpen proles uh, is perhaps unkind, but I think lumpen in terms of their politics, more importantly, more than their kind of sociological composition, lumpen in the sense of being kind of inconsistent, deracinated um, and easily buffeted by um, existing kind of interests and institutions. So, I think the the problem is more, you know, they constantly see things in sociological rather than political terms. So the, you know, the question isn't the, um, when they say, you know, the proletariat no longer has any task because they think that the, um, you know, the abolition of industrial jobs in Western countries has kind of transformed um transform the working class and therefore transform working class politics is to substitute uh, a kind of uh, industrial and sociological transformation for a political defeat. It was a political defeat, not a, you know, not a restructuring of the labor market. The, the two things were intertwined in different kind of contexts, but they, they mix the two things together. And so they're unable, I think, to precisely identify what the problem is. The fact that we have less industrial jobs doesn't mean the kind of the searching around for a new kinds of politics in response to that is what the left has been doing for the last 40 years, if not longer, um, rather than tackling the nature of that political defeat head on. And I think Ed notes um, kind of end up in the same trap. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, I think they, I think it is a political examination, a political examination, and you know, the, the industrial working class has. I mean, you know, they talk about premature deindustrialization across the world, you know, and there's a famous statistic about China over the huge expansion in industrial output over, the, you know, the past 15 years, the size of the industrial working class remains the same. So, you know, that's something that um, needs to be grappled. But I, I agree that they do sort of muddle or at least don't clearly enough disentangle the kind of social transformation, the transformation in uh, the labor process to one where to, to the kind of political question. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose the point is, I mean, you know, look, so people aren't manufacturing industrial widgets anymore in red brick factories in the West, you know, or at least less so. But many people will kind of experience what will in fact be an industrial division of labor in terms of the way labor is organized, in terms of the way they relate to work, not to mention, you know, just the fact that um, wage labor is the dominant kind of experience of most people's lives. So the fact, you know, the kind of the end of industrial of an industrial workforce in developed economies doesn't seem to me to be the, it's a, you know, it's a significant no, but, but shift. Just in but not in just in developed economies. That's, I mean, that's, a, that's the point. It's around the world that there sure, is. Sure. But the, the point, I mean, it's most, I mean, if we're taught the, in terms of the defeat of the left, it's epicenter is the developed world. And if you want to kind of talk about it in terms of a restructuring of the labor process, then there's the danger that you submerge the political aspects of that defeat within that. And this is what I think they essentially do. So they draw political conclusions from the kind of sociological restructuring, um, the economic restructuring of various kinds of labor processes and markets, um, but they don't think through the politics of it. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, I think that's, yeah. I, I, I mean, as much as it, though it does tie to a, a thing and you called it a 
fake mythology about Marxism, about it being associated with the industrial worker. But the the the, the fact is, no, is that it historically, was, but it, I mean, it was based in it was based on that but, identity of no. Sure. I mean, it's not like it wasn't important, but it was always it was the to say that the you know the that Marxism was about kind of uh, to a particular kind of work. Um, it's to do with the significance of the Industrial Revolution. It's not to do with the require you know the based on kind of a um, no no. But but there's a but there's a Marxism of books, and then there's a Marxism of really existing movement, right? And it's the latter. Well, there's a Marxism of real politics as well, right? And the real polit, the real kind of um, the major kind of meaningfully Marxist political parties of the late 19th and um, early to perhaps mid 20th century, they were not, um, you know, they were not purely consumed with um, just kind of defending um, people who worked in smokestack factories. It's a caricature, and so overturning that caricature is a way of um, drawing a line under the past doesn't actually deal with the legacy of the past. It doesn't actually deal with the kind of historical problems inherited from the defeat of the left. George? Well, I guess just to say that the... Like it's obvious that the... People have been talking a lot about the petty bourgeoisie uh, recently or the PMC and how those things relate or similar or different... And it's clear to me that the concept of the petty bourgeoisie, like that's a historical one, i.e. it will change what it looks like over the course of history. The same is true for the working class. The same is true for capital. Like the, those are some of the most crucial concepts in, in Marxism. Um, and so to sort of say that the working, like working class doesn't exist anymore because it's not the same as it used to be is not... Um, is is not a kind of useful way to i'm not necessarily saying that's what they say consistently across all the like, all the different um articles in in an issue or across all the different issues but it does seem like there is a little bit of of that in in this one at least sort of saying like yeah this is you know yeah maybe i'm maybe i'm sort of agreeing with phil to a certain extent that there's a like there's a model that's from the past and that doesn't work so the the model can be sort of you know is instead of updating it let's just kind of turn it on its head which i don't i don't know how useful that is mm. so let's move on to the last theme before we finish on some of the bigger questions uh, and the last theme here is identity politics and it's the area where we would probably conflict most head on with uh, Endnote's approach, um, but I think as Phil hinted at uh, in a comment earlier, at right at the beginning, uh, there's a certain ambiguity there, and that they seem to hint one way and then the other, partly perhaps because of uh, being a collective. So there's not, uh, you know, maybe these kind of issues aren't entirely ironed out, right? And maybe it's been written collectively, and so you're not really sure who to attribute it to. Um, let me just take a quote to, to set you, a listener, up with, uh, with the context. They argue that identity politics is the necessary mode of politicization of a neoliberal subject for whom the predicates of identity seem to be simultaneously essential and inessential, empowering and enfeebling. Their operationalization and struggle, so the, opera, the, the, the use of identity politics in struggle, leads to a confusion of identities, confusion in both in, in the sense of being confused, but also a confusion being fused together of these different identities. So I think on the one hand, you can say that it's correct that identity politics is the necessary 
mode of politicization of the neoliberal subject. On the other hand, I mean, I would see that as a bad thing. And they kind of take that as a fact and then try to run with it. Um, and I think they, they can note that it's that identity politics on the one hand seems to be a hardening of identities and, uh, you know, for example, uh, the hardening of kind of ethnic identities. Um, but at the same time, it's something which is also constantly in flux more along the lines of kind of what post structuralist thinkers would talk about of this constant play with identities. And it's very hard, I guess, then to put it, put your finger down on whether uh, identity politics is something which is about really hard categories of people, or if it's about this con kind of constantly shifting uh, play of identities. In any case, um, what do we make of this idea that um, that kind of identity politics is the is the game of politics today. In fact, they even say that um, the form that repoliticization has taken um, in the way that we would say, put it at the end of the end of history, the form that repoliticization has taken has been identity politics. And I, I, I suspect that's probably correct. But I don't think it's good. I think it's, um, I don't think it's true to, to kind of uh, distinguish from, distinguish identity politics and material politics. I think identity politics is a form of, material politics there's a certain group um in society who who i think does you know does does very well their interests um tend to be furthered by this prism through which politics is seen which is a very individualistic um disaggregating atomizing one and i think that's that's not a good one for working class politics i for the majority of of people, the numerical majority of people who um, who don't have who don't have power, who don't have ownership of the means of production, whatever. Um, so yeah, I mean, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a good thing. You might say to a certain extent it, it's a it's a consequence of of a certain sort of idea environment, but I think it's a bit fatalistic to say that's the only uh, politicization process on on offer or that that could be possible. Um, because then you're sort of, you're already accepting the rules of a game that's kind of rigged against you. I don't know why, why, what you can gain from that. I think it would be very limited. So one of the quotes, um, you know, one of the kind of extracts we've got here, um, quote, identity politics marks the return of the political rather than the birth of the post-political. Liberalism and wokeness have become disruptive forces while the left increasingly embraces nationalist populism. Uh, I mean, I think... Again, this kind of is, that was the worst bit in the whole thing for me. But yeah, yeah indeed, yeah. So I mean, well, that's what I was going to say essentially, and it seems to me this is one of the kind of strands which is incompatible with some other points that are made in the course of the argument, and it's difficult to see how, um, you know, what the position is ultimately. But the it does seem to me to be the the claim that um, it's very difficult to separate some of this communization stuff. The idea of the direct transformation of existing society with no kind without being mediated through both a historical and institutional process and um, without requiring kind of um, a widespread political transformation. It seems to me to be, you know, kind of um, just a return, essentially, to the prefigurative politics of the of anti-globalization. So, so oh. I, I agree with you. Can you, can you spell out what you mean by historical process and mediation and so on what do you mean specifically well, that it would that it requires organizing institutions that it requires like that 
um, parties, um, various kinds of institutional bodies, whether that be trade unions or other kinds of, um, I don't know, associations of various kinds, you know, social bodies that incorporate different kinds of interests, and that it's a historical process of winning people, of requiring people to uh, to um, think about their interests and to relate their understanding of their social position to their interests and to the interests of other groups, rather than this notion that it would be possible to kind of directly seek to directly supplant that. I mean, communization is very vague. So, I mean, this is the way I understand it. And it's very difficult for me to, and, you know, I'm sure listeners will correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems to be very difficult to separate it from the kind of the prefigurative occupy politics of the late 1990s and the early 2000s and the early phase of the economic crisis that we kind of, um, you know, carve out a space where we directly kind of reorganize things in a different way. And inevitably that seems to me to lean into the disorder of our times as they do here. And the fact that they condemn kind of any, um, you know, the fact that the the so-called, the, the, what they call the left embraces nationalist populism that seems to me to speak to their own weakness, that they're um, they're still stuck in kind of the, um, I don't know, the kind of the shimmering kind of globalist miasma yeah. of late era neoliberalism. One one question I always have about communization is who who does the reorganizing? Like what what's the what's the agency? Is the it collective. a is, is it a collective? You will you will be is communized? It a, is it a, is it a technical process or, I mean, because if it's a collective process to the, the kind of the most cynical or like most, what's it crudest, no, most vulgar, that's the word I'm looking for. The most vulgar um, response that I would have is like collective agency. That sounds like, like petty bourgeois, like talk to me. Like it's either, you know, it's, it's a group with certain class interests who do the collectivizing if it's a technical process, who has control over the technical process? Um, so that's what I mean. Maybe it's a case of just needing to read a little bit more. But is that the idea that it's kind of a transition to communism without the need for the agency of the working class? Or am not I just without being, the, as no, I said, no, it's the class the... Itself. no, it's the working class itself, though maybe not constituted anymore as as the working class. But I mean, it's. Um, you know, it's populations people, it's people with... as well, though they're vague about whether or yeah. not these surplus populations are really able to kind of become new political actors. They do, they people do it directly. People who can't even be exploited anymore, I mean, effectively, right? Who, who it come together. Still has, yeah. yeah, it still has the hostility to, it still kind of bears the heart and negri, you know, anti-globalization hostility to political organization and to centralized political authority to the state. Yeah. Um, and as long as it's marked by that, and this speaks to the kind of the anarchist kind of strain, which is um, shot through very heavily throughout all of the communization and the endnote stuff, as long as they're committed to that, it seems to me it will, you know, be very difficult to separate itself from, um, yeah, just from kind of capitalist decay and late neoliberalism. It'll become just another kind of marketing ploy another gimmicky new identity, another social media trend, another kind of um, another kind of grad student project, essentially. Why are you so, so horrible to these grad students, Phil? You've been one yourself, Phil, I would uh, remind it's you. The, it's the, the, and, yeah, and the you hatred are, and, of the, yeah, and, and, and you of the are condition directly, you've surpassed. Yeah, you were directly involved in the creation and the reproduction of grad students, Phil. So, um, you know, You're careful complicit. there, mate. You, you are um, responsible. 
Yeah, I want to get them past the grad students. Though I don't want them to remain in the state of being grad students. You're going to be first against the wall. That's terrible. Yeah, if the communizers take over, I will. So, so so I just wanted to turn to like one one other angle on on identity politics before concluding on some of some bigger questions, Um, which is that for me, you know, I. I'm intrigued by the attempt to take identity politics seriously because I would just dismiss it and go, it's fucking terrible and stupid. But on the other hand, identity politics is something that goes well beyond just um, idiot hyper-liberals on the internet playing with uh, trans identity and whatever. You know, it's not just that. Identity politics is something that goes beyond that. Um, And I think if we see it as all politics, which starts from a basis, not from a universalist, basis and commitment to a political idea like socialism, um, but as something that is constituted on the base of what your existing identity is. It might be your local community. It might be uh, as women. It might be as, you know, whatever. Um, then uh, then I think it's, it's something that does have to be tangled with. But for me, I always have to come back to the point that these are particularist and the challenge always has to be to universalize these things. And I mean, the universal always exists on the basis of a particular it starts from there but you know the point is always to always be universalizing right um and what endnotes are critical of they and explicitly they talk about a that the left has recently retreated to citizen nationalism but for me and i think for all of us that retreat is a retreat i admit it's a retreat but it's a retreat to precisely the only evident existing form of universalism left. Um, it's a partial universalism. It's not the universalism of the international working class, but it's a, it's a universalism at least of, you know, of, of citizenship. Um, and that seems to me m- more productive as a politics, as a you know, point to pursue it from, uh, than the embrace of kind of all these, this confusion of identities. Well, just a, a couple, a couple of a couple of a couple of points on this. The first is that I think the terms identity politics, the term identity politics, and maybe like the term the left, is not use. I don't. I think at this point in time, often it's often more does more harm than good because everybody is talking about something different when they use these yeah. these words. Yeah. You know, not yeah. that they're essentially contested concepts, but literally Agreed. they're just not that useful. Um, but the point that uh, that's actually not very helpful to this discussion, though. Um, but the point that I would make about the left's retreat to citizen nationalism—that's um, not my. Uh, I mean, it hasn't at all. happened exactly. It's, it hasn't no, happened. the left is the most cosmopolitan aspects and people of society, um, at least in the you know the the British context. It's a it's a way to that cosmopolitanism is a way to to escape from the nation and the domestic working class on the grounds of conscience and and um, various problems that the working class has uh, apparently with racism, fascism, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's quite clearly a kind of anti, anti-national uh, and therefore anti, you know, anti-working class, anti-democratic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera project. But then again, I'm talking about the left and I've got my mm. certain ideas of, of people who, who this represents for I which mean, it's true. And, I, I suspect, I, think, know, I, mean, I suspect, sorry, just, just to say retreat. one thing, I suspect what they're referring to there, for example, is Bernie Sanders and Bernie Sanders saying, you know, that uh, open borders is a Koch brothers project. So that would be yeah. the left there retreating to citizen. Do you have a, do you have literally another example though? I mean, I mean, no, look, well, I'm not trying the, to be uh, antagonistic. Antagonistic. 
the full always, Brexit well, or Le- the Lexit stuff. Lexit, yeah. Lexit stuff is Lexit generally and full taken... Brexit are very different. No, they they no, are obviously, but there are very few, very they're few. They're not the same. They're, they're very. They're entirely not the same, but, but they are but conflated by our. <laughs> no, no. This look. I know. I know. I know. This probably isn't very interesting. Not narcissism with small differences. I know what the argument is. Significant political difference. From the perspective of this particular question of citizen nationalism versus whatever Endnotes is proposing, Lexit and the full Brexit are the same, right? No, they're not. They're not. In the sense, no, just like seeing the side actually, of politics, the nation, the nation state. But right, that's not what all right, boys. But anyway, right. let's, let's, let daddy let daddy sort this out for you both. Okay? We can agree to we can agree boys. to disagree because we're 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 polite and, and we're uh, not a collective, so we can um, we can disagree anyway, go, go and continue. What I was going to say was framing it as a retreat. Retreat makes it sound like we're you know like the left is kind of um, abandoning gloriously won positions or something. You know what they're talking about really is um, the fact that there is kind of, you know, the left behind uh, kind of populist, whatever you want to call it, revolt against um, the neoliberal globalization of the last 30 years. That's what they're talking about. So framing that as a retreat, retreat from what? I mean, where were the where were the gains that are being abandoned? You know, I mean, this is so I think the, the framing is entirely at once revealing and also um, fundamentally dishonest. So I don't think the, um, you know, I think that in itself is a, an important point to make and how they frame it. I just, I, I think just, just to be, just to explain what I, what I understand by their meaning of it. I, I agree that in political terms, it's not a retreat. Intellectually, it's a retreat because it's a retreat from proletarian internationalism to talking about democracy within the nation state. Right. And, and well, and again, from the perspective though, but of the left's no... own history. That is there is no proletarian, you know, the idea that it was uh, that there's some kind of proletarian internationalism in what, you know, anti-global, the anti-globalization. No, no, rights. no, that wasn't. No, no, that wasn't. They, they, they agree that there wasn't any there either. The point is just no, but, but, if, you, uh, if you if you're talking no, about if you're Alex, talking about. From... Alex, no, wait, I, you're 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 being generous to a fault here because I think they there is nothing. They cast it as a retreat, but they don't say retreat from what. There is no meaningful kind of left internationalism, successful left internationalism that they point to, or that I think anybody could reasonably point to, to which the kind of um, populist insurrection within the nation state. No, but is like Le- Lenin, retreat. the German, the German Revolution, etc. Like the whole yeah, way. But they're from, not talking from, about that, are they? I think they are because they're talking about in terms because they always talk about in terms of the history of the entirety of the left. So I think they are. But I, but I agree in terms of, in political terms. Looking more recently, yeah, it's it can't be seen as a retreat. It's an attempt. To it's it's a but forward step, if anything, to, to suggest, engage with to engage with citizen nationalism, again, as they call it. Because the idea of uh, you know the idea that it's look, I mean, my point is the way in which they frame it indicates that they are entirely caught within the kind of um, alter globalization, um, cosmopolitan left kind of project that uh, George has you know picked up on. The no, the idea that the that it's a retreat or that it, it's a retreat, you know. That it's I, think it, I think it's ambiguous because they're very was... critical. They, they explicitly criticize that whole anti-global stuff. So it's, I think that it's a, it's a, something it so relates more to what you said at the beginning. That it, huh? you know, how, so my, you know, by all, you know, by all means, I mean, there are many criticisms to be made of the kind of populist insurrections of the ballot box, but the fact they frame them as a retreat, I think exposes the, you know, the uh, the dishonesty of the position, especially all the more so if they know there are so many problems with the kind of anti anti globalization cosmopolitan left, and they still frame it as a retreat means that they're skeptical essentially of um, of 
of, uh, of working class politics, of right. left behind communities, of people who are stuck in nation states and who don't have kind of fancy theories to write about and put down in endless kind of uh, blogs on the Internet. They're skeptical of ordinary people with ordinary concerns. And that, I think, is exposed by the framing, however much they might protest. So I was just going to say that they're, they're, they're dividing us. They're making us argue that's what they wanted. They're dividing, divide and, and rule the, 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 the Bunga boys. But I wonder if, if we can get on to the next, the next question. Okay, so one of the f- final questions to, to finish up on is our struggles over consumption rather than production where it's at. I think we're confronted and what EndNote's tried to tangle with is the evident lack of uh, labor self-activity of uh, strikes and trade union organizing and so on. Um, That's obvious. And um, so one one of the ways out of that or or one of, or the way to deal with how are the masses actually moving and being active today uh, are, we often find, um, protests and so on around consumption. So the gilet jaune could be seen as one of those around, you know, consumption and distribution rather than uh, production. It's not uh, activism in the, in, the, in the workplace. First of all, I want to say, I think communizers engage in a lot of self-activity, perhaps not with labor, but certainly a lot of self-activity. Mm. But with, with the question over consumption, it's, we, the gilet jaune isn't. We're clearly operating at high intellectual level here. Self, the self, self-activity. That's good. We got one wank joke in the there, now we can move on. The gilet jaune, I don't, wouldn't frame it as a struggle over consumption. I mean, it's... Uh, you know, a response to a state tax. Um, that, but that is a con- but that's a question of consumption of not being able to afford more things. It's not about what what you're doing producing and how production is organized, but well, about what you true, can consume. But, sure, but I mean, I don't. I mean, disposable income. I wouldn't quite say it's a struggle over consumption. I mean, that, my understanding that is what it, of a no, struggle but, over. Can I finish? My on. point was going to. I understand about struggles over consumption is uh, you know kind of. Um, it's about ethical consumerism, boycott kind of campaigns, protests no, no, over no, no, particular no. companies. Well, that's the way I understand that's, it. That's like, labor that processes and particular kind of corporations that use, you know, Bangladeshi garment workers in deplorable conditions. I don't, I just don't see the gilet jaune as falling into a. No, no, no. I think look, you can only have you can only have two different things. You can either have a struggle of consumption or overproduction, or maybe citizenship. Those are the only things that exist. Um, so th- these are kind of fairly exclusive categories. So, but, and, but and what you're talking I about, I mean, evolved, all the kind I of fair trade evolved. stuff, hang on, all the fair trade ethical consumption stuff is one form of polit- really crap liberal forms of um, struggles over consumption, but there's struggles over consumption, for example, over hunger, over not having enough to eat, over um, in, you know inflation and rising prices, which you have uh, all over the world all the time. You had massive ones in Iraq recently and so on. So those are struggles over consumption. Are they though? I mean, because you sure have to produce, are. you have to produce things like you, you, the, the, every struggle over consumption is, is preceded by a prior set of decisions about what is produced and who produces it. But, but that's not what um, they're not putting those into but, question. They say the prices are too high. Not we're not paid enough. I mean, this, this, this is that's yeah, but we're not paid enough. It's not, is not, um anyway i guess i guess my may, maybe there is something in in what they say in terms of consumption is more politicized than production and we don't have very many people talking about um like questions of production like with we you know the 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 discourse whatever that is is entirely about consumption choices um consumption responsibilities on the part 
of individuals and there's nothing about like what do we collectively produce is that rational or irrational is that democratically decided or not and so on and um, well there are a few but it's clearly it's clearly one side rather than the other um and you know that is that is a consequence of the defeat of organized labor i think there's there's you know labor makes things so that's that's been it, it elided well that's like people don't don't it's it's not straightforward as saying that we should we want th- we want struggles over production so we can just bring them about um but like that's clearly a, a task of you know that we should be engaged in to a greater or lesser extent is trying to politicize questions of production yeah i think i mean uh, i take you know i kind of um protests about you know hunger protests and protests over say you know um uh, inflation kind of uh, dramatic price rises in basic ne- necessary goods and so on i think that's fair to call it as consumption i think you know those are familiar from um those are familiar kind of uh, protests in the developing world and particularly in the last 10 years or so um as a you know the result in one way or another of austerity and economic upheaval i don't think the gilets jaunes count and that might be just my kind of um prejudicial kind of sympathies with them but I think that is more connected to um, a politics of citizenship and um, a grievance kind of based on uh, the, the disregard of a, of a kind of urban elite for a particular, um, a particular group on the edges of the, of the urban core. So I don't quite think a protest against a national tax, which is seen to disproportionately punish a particular group of people, is quite the same as a protest over a dramatic kind of rise in the price of staple food goods, for instance. Um, but anyway, like maybe I'm splitting cares here. Should we move on to the next question? Yeah, no, let's. Um, I, I uh, think that the thing that confronts you reading this piece, and I think talking about this new world disorder, is that you can either be potentially trying to claw out something positive out of it, some enthusiasm about the fact that for all the disorder, disorganization, uh, sense of collapse, sense of ending, that there might be something positive coming out of it, that these revolts might presage a more general insurrection. Uh, Or it might just mean that these are avatar symbols of the fact that the world is... um, going to hell in a handcart. So effectively, that's the question, really. Um, Are we moving towards, as the article says, as the article asks, are we moving towards an omega point where revolution becomes inevitable? Or the non-movements, or do the non-movements indicate our entrance into an ungovernable world? I think seeing revolution as inevitable is is just, yeah, is, is just coping, just copium or whatever the i don't even know what that well the correct way to, to call it is i mean the, the 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 situation that faces us in my opinion is basically the same as it's been 150 years that we have the technological we have the technical capacities for a different form of society do we have the political organization and will um so if you if you're talking about revolution being inevitable like what's the time frame because i've only got a certain amount of time um that i'm going to be around <laughs> i would imagine so oh, you know, george don't leave us. Uh, sorry, sorry to break it to 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 you guys and and uh, any of my family who might be listening. But yeah, I'm <laughs> why, why, why? I, think we, I think we all are. That's my hot take um, from this episode. I'm a fucking but, immortal. But um, yeah, no, I mean the. I guess the 
what I really take issue with, um, although I, I found this, I found this a very challenging, like essay to read some really good points and some things which I, and I, this is probably speaks to a lot of things that we've said, it being quite uneven. I found it quite, you know, difficult to work out what exactly it was saying at certain points. But one thing which they do draw on, which I think is like, you know, becoming cruder um, and more vulgar as, as time goes on, I think is like, they, they go into this um, fascism blackmail, um, so-called. And this idea is basically that the, what um, they bring in is this idea that essentially working class activity, these non-movements, what do they really at their core suggest or, or, or like have as, as their, as a threat? Well, it's these, um, these liberal and fascist forces are gaining strength. It's, um, you know, this idea that essentially there's a pos- the possibility, and this is a quote, the possibility that a growing segment of the population will come to identify with this shameless brutality raises a real fascist danger. So essentially what they're really trying to do, I think, is to say, well, any activity that looks like it's, you know, working class, maybe organized is really, is really fascist. And this actually, like, it's there is no anti-fascism because there is no fascist threat and there is no fascist threat because the organized working class at this point is so so defeated and weak so i think i i just think like saying that these non-movements represent an incipient fascist threat is an, is a really ultimately a call to demobilize people um which i think is is like is not the politics that i would be on the same side of uh, ultimately yeah like i said maybe i'm just getting cruder and, and more vulgar um, in my in my readings, um, as as lockdown it erodes my brain. But um, I think I think that what they're getting at is, and I think they're wrong to call it fascism. That's the problem. But that there is the possibility, and you, I mean, there, there's plenty of evidence for it of su- popular support for authoritarianism. So um, of identification, maybe with police and police brutality to stop these assholes on the street running riot. Right. That that exists. That that's a real thing. I'm um, not quite. I'm not quite sure that's I'm not sure that's the same as support for authoritarianism, which would is more, I would say, um, you know, support for a particular kind of hostility to um, different parties, impatience with parliamentary kind of procedure, perhaps. These are the kinds of things which would be um, drawn out by polls. There's, and there's we've talked punitive to, populism, you know, of voting oh, for there is a there is a punitive populism and there are conservative reactions to, you know, kind of disorder and so on. Not quite sure it's um you know I'm not quite sure it's authoritarian exactly, and it's not something which is the it's not purely something which is the property of um of the right you know, and famously you had say the Italian the uh, gay Marxist director famously, um you Pasolini. know sided yeah. yeah Pasolini sided with the cops um because he was kind of um repulsed by the the middle class character of the 68ers that was back in 68 when you had a kind of organized working class movement so i mean i i think it's a bit more i don't think it's so clear cut with respect to this question of whether or not you know the amiga point and our entrance into an ungovernable world i think they underestimate the ungovernability the question or they overestimate ungovernability and underestimate um the you know if there is no alternative then the status quo will continue. That's simple. I think that's a good place to leave it, actually. Um, something to ponder. And as always, but especially here, we're interested to know what you've made of it. Uh, if you've read the article, what you make of it, what you make of our take. Um, and again, just to repeat, I guess it's because these this is a, a group which is tangling with the same 
problems and questions that we are, but coming up with different answers. So that's why we thought it was uh, interesting and worthwhile to engage with. We hope that you found this worthwhile uh, to listen to, and we can obviously carry on this debate uh, onwards here uh, on an alpha bonus bonus uh, coming up. Uh, so do again, send in your questions, comments, criticisms, and whatnot. All right. Thank you for listening. Catch you later. Bye-bye.